Hey, Junior here. Thanks for hitting play. You are one of three different types of people. Let's have some fun and see who you are. Stick with. Let's find out who you are. We started a new series today called Three. Three. It's a two-week series. Maybe we should have called it two. Uh, no, three. Three is three is perfect. I got a thing for the number three. I, I, lo- I love three. I got three kids. I got three wives. No, I'm shook. Can you imagine? Can't even handle the one I have. Um, three is very poetic. I, I, I don't know. I just got a thing for the number three. But that's not why we're calling this series three. Today we're going to look at three different types of people, three categories of people, and you fall in one of those three categories. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. That's going to be fun. And then next week we'll look at another three. And so we're calling it three. Simple. Yeah. Creative. Man, who cares? Luke chapter 10 is where we're at. Luke chapter 10, really encourage you to grab a Bible. We've got Bibles in the chairs. Grab one of those. Otherwise, phones, tablets. We have the Bridge app with the Bible on there. You can take notes there as well. But I encourage you to grab a Bible. That way you're not just staring at Pam's glasses, but you have the text in your hands. We can go through this together. But Luke chapter 10 is where we're going to be. Before we jump in, let me just give you a little bit of a context as to what's going on here. Because as you're turning there in your Bible, you're going to see, oh, this is like a, this is a story that you've probably heard. Even if church isn't your thing, this is a story that um, you've, you've probably heard. And I want to give a little context to it because we're actually going to go deeper into it than normally people go. Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's doing what he mostly did, and that is teaching. And then he takes some Q&A. And anytime you do Q&A, it's always risky because you get a lot of dumb questions. You ever, you ever hear the, the, that saying, uh, there's no such thing as a stupid question? I disagree. There's a lot of stupid questions out there. Some people ask them because they just they want to be heard or they want to make some sort of comment. Uh, and I'm sure Jesus fielded a lot of dumb questions. Thankfully, the writers don't include those. But Jesus does get a good question as, as he's teaching. One guy says, he says, Jesus, you uh, tell us to love our, our neighbor all the time. It's a big teaching of yours. So can you tell me who's my neighbor? And then Jesus goes into this story, which is what we're going to look at. And the main application for the story is their neighbor is everyone, regardless of color, uh, culture, socioeconomic class. Anyone that we come into contact with is our neighbor, and we are to love them like we love ourselves. That's the explicit theme in this story. But there's also this beautiful, implicit theme playing out in here as well. There's a secondary application, and this is really important as, as you study Scripture. Scripture has one interpretation. Anybody who says Scripture has many different inter- interpretations, be very careful. That's a big red flag. Scripture has one interpretation, but many applications, multiple applications. And so we're going to hone in on one of those secondary applications. We're gonna, again, we're going to go a little bit deeper than normally people do. It'll be worth it. It'll be fun. Let me pray. We'll jump right in. God, ask for your, uh, ask for your Holy Spirit uh, right now as we open up your word. Uh, may your spirit illuminate this text to us because we, we need that as we look at your words. I mean, your Holy Spirit convict us. And God, I pray that you fill this church, not just with, with people, but with a power and with conviction. You are going to speak through this text as you always do. I ask that we really focus on you and what you have to say. And this is your word. And we believe it is true, and we receive what it says. Please open our hearts, engage our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as the lens of Scripture zooms in, the sky behind him radiates an orange hue, and it would be enjoyable 
if it weren't for the sky in front of him boasting a jet black. For the last couple hours, he's picked up pace, trying to beat the sunset. But the more the sun dips, the lower his heart sinks. The sun won the race. And the loser is now being engulfed in this eerie darkness. See, everybody knows this road is a road you don't travel at night, especially alone. There's just too many stories. Stories of mugging, stories of murder, stories of animal attacks. This road is the road horror stories are about. And he finds himself right there in the worst possible situation. He's exhausted from running. He slows down to catch his breath, but his rapid heart rate only picks up as panic sets in. The road ahead of him carries on into a blackness. Only God knows what awaits him up there. The silhouetted trees above him sway in the wind. The the howling breeze seems to just cut right through him. Each sound of a bush rustling makes him jump. The light of the city is just over the hill. Hopefully tomorrow he'll be bragging about surviving this road this night. And Jesus continues. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jerusalem to Jericho. If you've never been to Jerusalem, you should come with me sometime. Jerusalem is up on a mountain. It's a mountain city. And Jericho is a nearby uh, large city down below. Actually, <clears throat> Jericho is below sea level. This road drops 3,300 feet for 17 miles. If you're walking, it's about a five-hour walk. And Jesus gives us these details. You ever wonder why? Like, this is a parable. It doesn't really matter. Why give these details, Jesus? And for those of us who are more analytical or methodical, you, you know, you like data, you, you think this doesn't really matter where the guy is. He doesn't exist. So why is Jesus giving us unnecessary details in this story? Well, first, so that people can picture it. They know this road. Many of them walked this road just days earlier to get to Jerusalem. In fact, Jesus just days earlier was walking this road to get to Jerusalem. And so as Jesus is teaching and he's, and he's telling the story, Jesus is picturing it, and he's inviting others into the story as well. See, the people sitting around Jesus right on the Temple Mount right now, their minds are going, oh yeah, that, that, that road that uh, dips down uh, goes through that that um, olive tree orchard, my kids skin their knee running down one of those hills. I know exactly what road you're talking about. He's inviting, Jesus is inviting them into picturing this story. But he's also, and this is important, he's also personalizing it for them. He's putting you or them in the traveler's shoes. See, they're also thinking, oh, that would totally suck to be there at night. All alone. It's like, it's the worst trying to get to a city before nightfall. Been there, it's terrifying. So if you read uh, if you read commentaries on, on this passage, there's like uh, commentators and, and authors and scholars that they'll speculate and they kind of argue back and forth. They're going, "Who is this man that is walking on this road? Is he a Jew? Is he a Roman? Is he rich? Is he poor? Is he young? Is he old? Why doesn't Jesus tell us who this guy is? Because he's you. For a moment, Jesus wants to put you in the traveler's shoes, in this guy's shoes. Verse thirty. The man is going down, you, going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. So the poor guy doesn't make it. I know you were cheering him on, but he got jumped. And unable to move, he lays there for hours in the darkness that thugs have run off. And this is when animals 
close in. This is an area that is known to have bears roaming, leopards, hyenas. Not too long before this, Samson ripped open a lion in these parts, and so apparently there's lions. So this guy is sitting meat, reaches for a rock for protection, and he just prays for sunrise as he lays there, and it comes. And not just the sun, but he finally hits a stroke of luck, a silhouette of a man appears up the road, and as he gets closer, it's not just any man, it's a man of God. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So for whatever reason, the priest didn't want to give him the time of day. could have been that the priest didn't want to defile himself and, and touch a man who was about to die, because if he did, he'd be defiled, and he'd have to go and have ritual uh, cleansing that would take days. That's annoying. could have been that he was afraid, you know, that the robbers were nearby. I, don't, I just don't want to get involved. But either way, the priest goes, ew, ain't nobody got time for that, and he continues on. Verse 32 it says, so likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, pass by on the other side. Uh, Levites assisted priests in the temple. The priests came from the line of Levi. Levites were looked up to in society. So this is another religious guy. Uh, he's very distinguished. Same thing. Doesn't even walk close to inspect. He just goes on the other side of the road. So the poor guy's 0 for 2. But the third guy, number 3, third guy's a charm. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound his wounds and pouring oil and wine. Then he set him on his animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Samaritan. That's another detail that's important to this story. There's a lot of friction between Jews and Samaritans when you read throughout the Gospels. And, and there's reason for it. There, there's some history to it. See, 700 years before Jesus, the Jewish people were defeated and taken captive by Assyrians. So Jews were shipped out, but some Jews stayed behind. The Jews who were shipped out, they held on to their culture, their Jewish culture. It was very hard living in a foreign land, but they managed to hold on to their worship practices and their culture and their bloodlines. When they returned back, they found that the Jews who were left behind, well, they had intermarried with the Assyrians and they adopted Assyrian culture. So there's some bitterness. You know, you're returning going, what the heck? We, we went there. We had a harder on you. We stuck it out. You stayed behind where it was easier, and you just folded like a cheap suit. And so ever since the Jews returned from, from, um, from Assyria, they had called those Jews that had stayed Samaritans. They're not Jews anymore. They're a different culture. They folded. They're different worship. And so the Samaritans, they felt looked down on and, and left out. And, and it was true and some reason for it. But one of these Samaritans is walking down the road, notices blood on the trail. Finds this guy laying there, bandages him up, takes valuable oil and wine, pours it on his wounds to clean him, takes him to an inn. But the generosity continues further. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So the guy just writes a blank check. Now he had done enough. Bandages the wounds, takes a guy to an inn. That's already way above and beyond. But the Samaritan goes further. I'll put you up until you're good to go. And this is when Jesus poses the question, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Obviously, the Samaritan. That's the main theme. That's the main application. That's the story that even the children know. But there's also something that's playing out here. There's this implicit question that Jesus is asking without saying. This is one of the, the things I just love about Jesus' teaching. He's so brilliant. He communicates thoughts without explicitly saying it so that the reader like us or the listener back then, could arrive at that conclusion on their own. So let's go there. Take ourselves out of the traveler's shoes. We look at the story. 
There's three different types of people that the traveler met on the road. There's the robbers, there's the religious guys, and there's the rescuer. And you and me, we fall into one of those three categories. Oh, this is so good. Three types of people. Let's list them. Let's talk about them. Let's see who you are. There are, number one, the takers. There's the takers. The robbers, the ones who are out to get and to take. And here's what's automatically going on in your mind as we look at, as we look at number one, and we go, okay, well, that's not me. That's not me. I'm not saying I'm perfect, but that's not me. Like, if I met anyone in the story, I'm not the robbers. I don't jump people. I don't take their stuff. I never have. Or, you know, that life is behind me. I used to, but I'm not that way anymore. Let's think about this a little bit more, because you might be. You ever hear of the uh, European cuckoo bird? This guy might look cute. Don't be fooled. He's a little jerk. <laughs> European cuckoo birds will find hedge sparrow nests, and, uh, and they'll lay their eggs in the, in the hedge sparrow nest, and they'll take off. They don't take responsibility for their young. So the hedge sparrow will return, come back to their nest, and they'll just take care of the young. They'll, they'll keep the eggs warm, feed, feed the babies, protect them, and then raise the cuckoo birds. These cuckoo birds are takers. They don't physically take from other birds. They're not stealing worms or nests or eating others young, but they're takers. They skirt responsibility expecting someone else to pick up their slack. And when we think about it in that context, we got to admit, okay, my, we might do that. Like, I'm not out there beating people up for their money, but... I am hoping somebody else picks up my slack in some area of my life. I'm not taken from anyone, but I like the cuckoo bird. I'm, I'm hoping somebody else will raise my kids. Child raising can be a drag. So I'm not going to take the responsibility for raising them. I'm going to put that on others, the school system, the other spouse, parents. I can like buck up and intentionally train and sacrifice. I want the kids as little as possible, put it on others. It's a sign of a taker. Or another sign of a taker, captured in one picture. I just want to see how annoyed you are by this picture. It's my pet peeve. Just put the freaking cart away. Anybody do this at all? You need to leave. Actually, no, you need to stay here because you need Jesus. You cuckoo bird. It's a taker. I'll just leave it out. Somebody else can get it. It's a, it's a taker. Another sign, littering. Throwing your trash out the window or on the ground. You're a taker. Someone else will get it. Or we'll all just have to live with the trash blowing around. It's a taker. The person who zooms past everyone in a line in a construction zone and then cuts right in? Oh, that just hurt, didn't it? That's a taker. Or the person who gets to the trash can and balances the trash on top. Instead of taking the trash out, leave it for the next person, I'm just going to balance it. Oh, I'm starting some uh, household fights, aren't I, right now? It's takers, you cuckoo bird! Or the person who doesn't shovel their sidewalks in the winter. It's the person who parks over the sidewalk, not thinking of people who would like to use the sidewalk or kids on their bikes. It's the person who never asks questions during a conversation, just wants to talk about themselves. It's a, it's a taker. It's the person in the office who doesn't clean the microwave after they warmed up spaghetti, and now the microwave looks like a horror house. It's a taker. Need I go on? It's the person who doesn't clean up after their dog. It's the person who spits their gum out in the parking lot. Someone else can step in it. It's the person who doesn't refill the Keurig or the coffee pot. It's the person who attends church but never contributes, doesn't give or give much, but appreciates the lights on and, and the heat on, but that's others. Others can take responsibility for that, though. Takers are people who leave church going, what did I get today? 
was the sermon good? Was it up to what I wanted? Was, it, was the music good? What, what did I get? It's, it's a taker. I'm not trying to be an old man. Part of me feels like an old man because this week I just kept on writing down everything that annoys me. He's like, that's a taker, that's a taker. I'm just making the point that I think there's a lot more cuckoo birds in this room than we might think. And so maybe, just maybe, there's a little bit of a taker in all of us. Maybe. Some more than others. Takers mainly only think of their wants, their needs. Someone else gets something nice or has something nice. They can't be happy for them because they wish it for themselves. Takers often say or think things like, you know, nobody ever does that for me. Why can't I have that? Their thoughts are only directed toward their needs and their wants. The other things that that takers do is they're highly manipulative. They see relationships as something to get what they want from. They use people. Uh, when Nicole and I, when we go snowboarding up in northern Wisconsin, we're actually in the UP, but we drive through northern Wisconsin, we drive by this, this uh, hotel where John Dillinger had a shootout with the law. You know that John, uh, John Dillinger was this gunslinging gangster, right? Murder thug, thief. He was known to be a gentleman with an attractive personality. If you were giving him what he wanted, nice guy, great guy. If you weren't giving him what he wanted, that was the last face you'll see. See, Takers can have attractive personalities. They can be nice. They can be kind. They can be friendly. But they use people. They struggle to contribute to a relationship without getting in return. They're manipulative. When I was uh, taking our staff um, in staff meetings, I've been um, sharing some devos, and I've been going through the fruits of the Spirit. Uh, And so last week we've been talking about kindness. And uh, when it comes to kindness... Kindness is never leveraged to get in return. Though usually we leverage kindness to get something in return, but true kindness is never leveraged to get something in return. I remember my dad telling me early on when I, when I first got into ministry, he said um, that sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes the overly friendly people, like the overly nice people, are, tend to be takers or manipulative. They, they, uh, they're kind and they're nice until they don't get what they want, and then they bite you. Leveraging their kindness and relationships to get something. We've all been guilty of that at some point, and, and maybe there's even a, 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 an area of our life where we're still guilty of that. We're just using people either to make a sale or get a date or get somebody to do something. But takers have this pattern in their life. And so is there a little bit of a taker in you? Second type of person is the keepers. The keepers. You're a keeper in my book. I got to make like 45 of these sermons a year. So, you know, I start getting toward the end of the year. I just like start running out of jokes. Um, this, is, this is the one person that the majority of us are going to want to put ourselves as, that we're this person. It's kind of funny. Most of us, whenever we have to grade ourselves with something, we always tend to put ourselves in the middle. You know, I'm not that bad, but I got work to do, so I'll just kind of put myself in the middle. It's like, okay, whether that's true or not, that's fine, but you shouldn't be okay with landing here. This isn't like, hey, you passed the class. This is still not good. This is the priest. This is the Levite in the story. They walked past the need and thought, you know, it's not my problem. It's not my responsibility. It's my time. It's my money, and I'm going to keep it. You do you. I do me. In April, I went to Tennessee with a bunch of guys on staff, and we went, we went uh, fishing. We found this spillway, this big spillway with these huge fish just hanging out by the spillway. And Denim, he's one of our student guys, he's freaking out about it. Because like, we could see these huge fish, but none of them were biting at anything that we were throwing in. And so one guy walked up, he's a local, he walked up and he said, you guys need spoon lures, they go for these. And so he starts just like reeling them in, and we're like cheering them on. We don't have spoon lures, though. 
And so Denim asked the guy, he says, uh, do you have like a spoon lure that I could, and a spoon lure is like 50 cents, you know, could you have, do you have a spoon lure that I could borrow so I could catch one? And the guy goes, nah, man, I'm sorry. Two minutes later, he opens up his tackle box and about 100 spoon lures just fall right out. It's like, bro, you got to be kidding me. It's keeping, keepers, keepers like the stockpile. You know that whole uh, toilet paper craze going on during COVID? Really made no sense, but a society full of keepers felt like that was the item to keep, to stockpile. The day after Thanksgiving on Black Friday, we're going to see a cage match between the keepers and the takers fighting over TVs and Target. Keepers find security in their stockpile, whether it's an account, a closet, a garage, a storage unit. Keepers find security and confidence in what they've kept. Now, I'm not talking about a savings account. There's a difference between, because that's biblical, is saving. But there's a difference between saving and stockpiling. It's a really, really great book. Uh, you should read it. It's called The Psychology of, of Money. I, I read it a while back. I just skimmed it recently. Essentially, the book is about how we live our lives just moving goalposts. It's just how we spend our whole, our whole lives moving goalposts. And, and this is true for me. Like when Nicole and I, when we got married, uh, maybe like you, Nicole and I had very little. She was a nursing student, and I was making a couple hundred bucks a week working at the church. And so uh, we had very little, had this little apartment uh, next to a drug dealer. Our cars were very old. Our kitchen table uh, we found on the side of the road. This is just kind of like fun memories of our first year of marriage. And I would, I remember our first year of marriage, I would dream of getting Nicole a new vehicle, like one that would work every time. And maybe one where you could like unlock it with a key, like remote. That'd be so cool. We'd be living like high in the hog if we had that. And then we got one. We got a Kia Soul. Uh, we moved, you know, we got the goal, and then we moved the goalpost. And we started, oh, let's get a house, you know, of our own, where, where seedy people don't hang out outside of our apartment door. So we got one. We got this old stucco home. Move in, you know, got the goal. But our kitchen's from the 1970s. So let's move that goalpost again. Let's redo it. So make it our own. You know, so we saved up and then we redid it. Had this new kitchen. It's great. Let's move the goalpost again. We need a bigger house. Nicole keeps popping girls out. We need more bathrooms. So let's move the goalpost. And now we have a house with more bathrooms. The other night, so I have a truck. And uh, the other night, Nicole, had, we were just laying in bed. Nicole had said, uh, you know, honey, if I picked up... Uh, more shifts at the hospital, we could get like a used bigger truck. Like the girls are getting bigger, they should have more room in the back seat. Like, babe, you should get a bigger truck. And I said, I've never been more turned on in my life. <laughs> but it sparked this great discussion that we had. At what point do we stop moving the goalposts with our personal lives? And there's nothing wrong with, you know, progress and doing more and enjoying your hard work. That's fantastic. That's great. You should. But at what point do we go, you know, we're good here. Like, this is good. We don't have to move the goalpost again. Don't, don't need to chase yet another carrot. Let's just enjoy this and be generous and bless others and tap out of the rat race. Oh, still grow as a professional. Still grow your earning power. Grow the business. Grow your worth to the company. Get better. But when you personally say, financially, when it comes to these toys and the stockpiling and the commas, all this stuff, when do you say, you know, no, I'm good here. And now I'm going to use my resources to leave a legacy and do something much bigger than collect. See, keepers really struggle with this idea. Because I like moving the goalposts. I get addicted to that feeling. I really loved my wife moving out of a clunker and into a vehicle where you could unlock the button with, with you know, 
Unlock the doors with, with the key. That, that was a good feeling. I really liked moving my new wife out of our CD apartment into the house. That was a really good feeling. I really liked the feeling of telling my girls, that is your bathroom, do not come into ours. That was a fantastic feeling. And keepers, we get addicted to that feeling. Let's just keep moving the goalpost. Better cars, more cars. Let's get another garage. Let's get another closet, a storage unit, another purse to the collection, another comma to the account, another addition. But we miss out on that feeling of calling the game. I'm good here. Well, I could do more. I could drive that. I could live there. I could have that. I'm good. I'm doing something bigger now. That feeling is an acquired taste but it beats the goalpost game that we all play. So what, at what point are you going to call it? At what point are you going to stop moving the goalposts? See, most people chase that carrot all the way to the grave. When do you call it? There's so many in our church who have made that decision. People I so admire. Think of uh, John Knauss, our campus pastor. Had a successful career. And at one point just said, you know, I'm not moving the goalposts again. Like, I'm going to do something bigger now. And just generous, generous with, generous with the church. A couple of our, our, our elders who come here, they put off retirement to literally help fund projects for our church. Talking about buildings. I think of a, of a woman, successful career, owns a business and also owns real estate on the side, serves and gives like mad. This is a very simple life. Looking at her, you wouldn't think she has what she has. But she lives a simple life and just gives greatly. So many people in our midst who said, you know what? I'm good here. Now I'm going to do something bigger. I'm done being a keeper. I'm stopping for the guy in the road. And I'm going to live a better story. I'm going to be person number three. Speaking of person number three, it's the givers. The givers. You have the takers, the keepers, and the givers. You go back to Jesus' story that the traveling Samaritan saw a need and actively said, I'm going to see this through. I'm going to meet that need. I like to imagine the Samaritan opens his coin purse and saw two coins and thought, I'm exactly two days of travel away from Samaria, from home. These are two nights of staying somewhere. I kind of need these to get home. But you know what? I'll just go get more. I got the earning power. I can move things around. I'm in a position to see this guy through. That's a giver. I'm just going to preach to myself here, but you can come along for the ride. Is it just me, or will we move things around to do more or to get more, but rarely to give more? Like, oh, I like that truck. I'd like to redo the kitchen. I really want to go on that trip. So I'll move things around, and I'll cash that out, and I'll refinance this, and I'll put less here. I'll pick up an extra shift. I'll eat canned soup for a month, then I'll get it. Great. But I see someone on the side of the road or I think, you know, I should tithe. I should give toward that project. I should be more invested in the kingdom of God. See a need, but I go, uh, oh, I only got this left over. That's all I got. Oh, wait, hold on, wait a minute. I was just creative and I moved things around to get what I wanted there, but I only have a coin for this need in my pocket over here. See, the Samaritan givers... They go, no, I'm in a position to do more than the change I have left over in my pocket. I can be creative. I can move things around. I can see this further than the change I have left over. See, the truth is the happiest people, the most satisfied people, the people who struggle less with comparison and envy, the most confident people I know, they fall in this category. 
They gave up the whole goalpost game of looking around and comparing and, and pushing the goalposts and trying to keep up. They just gave it up and they found something better. In fact, I would go as far as to say this. If you ever find yourself in a funk, you know what I mean by funk, right? It's like just a funk and just not enjoying life, you're struggling with your image or struggling with comparison, you're just generally unsatisfied, you just kind of find yourself in a funk. I would argue giving more could be the quickest way out of that. I realized this a, a few years ago. We were visiting uh, Nicole's family up in Wisconsin, and she's from this small little town that's filled with like antique stores and boutiques, and uh, they have this like old-fashioned ice cream shop. And so well, we went into the ice cream shop, and, and my, my youngest, she was just in this foul mood. And she's gotten enough spankings to know that she can't just like sit there and be mean. So she takes her ice cream, she goes, sits in the corner, you know, on the corner table, and she just buries her face in the ice cream. And knowing that she was in a bad mood, I sat down next to her and I asked her for some ice cream. She goes, no, mine. I'm not okay with that. Like, there's enough brats in this world. I don't want to contribute to that population. I paid for the ice cream. You know, I could take it. I could, I could throw it away. I could give her away. And, and so I, I, made her, I made her give me a bite. Now, the truth is, I, don't, I, don't, I didn't need her ice cream. In fact, I didn't even want her ice cream. I, I had my own better ice cream. But I wanted to change her heart. And the quickest way to change her heart was for her to surrender and give me some of her ice cream. And so I made her give me some. So this big sigh and a firm brow, she sticks her, you know, her spoon out. And I kid you not, the moment I took a bite, her face visibly changed. Not 10 seconds later, she's giggling and offering me more ice cream. There's something powerful, so powerful about giving, about surrender. And this is why God pushes us to be person number three. He doesn't need your money. I mean, I used to hate talking about giving. Mainly because I know churches have abused it. So I just hated talking about it. In fact, I was hanging out with some other pastors yesterday. And they're like, yeah, Junior, what are you talking about this weekend? I said, oh, it's actually going to be on giving. They're like, oh, it sucks to be you. Like, yeah, I used to just hate it. And so I would apologize about it. I'd beat around the bush. But I got to this point where I just said, you know what, screw it. A quarter of Jesus' sermons were on this topic. And not because he needed money. He could feed 5,000 families with a Lunchable. The reason that Jesus talks so much about this, the reason that God invites you to participate generously in the kingdom of God, the reason that God wants you to be a giver is it does wonders for you. It directly affects your heart. It fills your, your spirit with light. I think too many of us are like little toddlers running around, taking stuff from other people, skirting responsibility. Mine, mine, no mine. I saw it first. I saw it first. And God says, can, can you just drop the misery? Can you surrender that? I made you to live above it all. I designed you to be a giver just like your creator. You are to give. And when you find yourself there giving, you're firing on all cylinders. You're transcending the insatiable comparison rat race. I'm inviting you to give it all up, do something bigger, and become person number Which person are you? Taker, keeper, or giver? One of my favorite books growing up uh, was this book right here, If Everybody Did, by Joanne Stover. I've talked about this before, uh, mainly because I think it did something to my own mentality. I can still hear my mom's voice reading this book to me. It's actually a disturbing book. I don't think it would get published today. Um, the... 
it's all about like telling kids not to be takers, but it does it in a very weird way. Like, in fact, I have some of the uh, pages up here. It says, the book goes like something like this. Uh, make a big splash. You know, a kid like running water everywhere. Well, this is what would happen if everybody did that. It's like the house is flooded. Or step on daddy's feet. Well, this is what would happen if everybody stepped on daddy's feet. He's just like, this is just like, this is getting really weird. It gets even better. Squeeze the cat. Well, this is what would happen if everybody squeezed the cat. He's like, it, it doesn't get much better than this for, for children's books. I th- again, I think it had a huge impact on my own psyche. I, like, this book may have messed me up. Um, the other day, my girls were playing with Play-Doh, and I just, I hate Play-Doh. I, I hate it so much. And they made this big mess of Play-Doh on, on the table. So I walk in, and I said, what if everybody made a mess for the Play-Doh? This world would be a terrible, crusty Play-Doh place to live, girls. You want to live in a, in a world like that? And they're like, I don't know, Dad, kind of sounds cool. I took, my, uh, I took this book to my daughter's kindergarten class because our teacher said, you know, any parent who wants to come and read a book to the class, you know, you can come. I was like, I got just the book for this class. So I, I showed up and I'm like showing the pictures and reading it to the kids and the kids are all laughing and the, and the teacher's like shaking her head. She doesn't look too happy. And she's like, what is wrong with you? It's like, you have no idea. You should come to the bridge though. But humor me for a second. Let's say we added a page to this book right now. And the page went something like this. Give like you. Let's be specific. Give to Jesus' church. Give to the kingdom of God like you. This is what would happen if everybody did. What would that page look like for you? What would you imagine on this page? Would there be a church? Give like you. Sacrifice like you. This is what would happen if everybody did. Now, knowing our church, like I'm just, we have so many generous people in our church, and, and I hope you hear my heart with this. It's not like this isn't like a sermon that, like, oh yeah, I need to talk about this because we're just so bad at this. Our, our church is so generous. And so I, there's a lot of us who could really imagine some pretty awesome things on this page. Man, if everybody sacrificed and gave like me, we could be doing so much more. It's like the average uh, church attender is like 20 bucks. But some of us here who really tithe, thinking, man, if everybody's given, man, budget would be like four or five times that. Some of us are imagining maybe a little bit smaller of a picture, smaller church. Others of us can't even imagine the chair that we sit in right now. See, the kingdom here on earth is funded by Samaritans. It's funded by givers. It's funded by threes. A common statistic is that 20% of church attenders make up for 80% of the church budget. 20% of church people are threes. It's got to change. Not so that the church can get more money, whatever. No, it's got to change so that church people, we can experience what it's like to live the way God designed us, to live bigger stories. To stop pushing the goalposts and chasing carrots and living like cuckoo birds. Just give it up and live a story worth telling. I hope I'm not too straightforward. Like if you're a guest with us, listen, we don't we like we actually don't talk about giving much really at all. But it is something that we we have to talk about because it is it is a big deal. And again, I used to just hate it and dread it and beat around the bush when, we, when I get up here, but I guess I got to the point where it's just like, man, when we talk about giving, 
The threes are going to be really excited we're talking about this. Yeah, you should give. It's so awesome. Live the story with me. The twos are going to be a little annoyed, and the ones are going to be angry, and, and that's okay. But Jesus talked about it, and we got to talk about it. Which person are you? Thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, would you give it a share? It goes a long way. Also, don't forget to subscribe if you haven't yet. Hey, God has something for you today. Go after it. Blessings. Blessings.